Well, hello and welcome to our New Year 2020 episode. It's safe to say we've all had a rather filling Christmas period. I know I have far too many chocolates, far too many sausage rolls, and the list is endless. Max, how are you on this uh, New Year time? Uh, well, I mean, it's you know, it's post Christmas, isn't it? So essentially, I'm nursing a food baby, uh, as is traditional at this <laughs> time of year. So yeah, very, uh, yeah, very full, absolutely. Just me and Mum for Christmas Day uh, this year, so it was very chilled out, um, very nice. And uh, I was actually Boxing Day. I spent uh, spent on my own, uh, and then had a bite to eat with Lisa and Lee, uh, some friends of mine. And yeah, that's that's pretty much about it, really. Just very chilled out. Nev, uh, how about you? What were you doing? Yes, I'm in a similar position. I've been in a food coma since uh, the 23rd of December, (laughs) (laughs) roughly. Uh, And uh, the diet starts, uh, well, immediately, frankly. Yes, I think we're all in that boat now, I think, to be fair. (laughs) But, uh, yeah, a nice Christmas, a a quiet one, uh, which I needed, just at home with me and Sue, and uh, looking forward to 2020. Very much so. Uh, what about you, Armando? What have you uh, got planned for uh, New Year and uh, what's been the highlights for you in 2019? Well, 2019 has been a year of change for us. Uh, everything oh, yeah, from okay. retiring. <laughs> well, I guess we started by getting married. Yeah, <laughs> technically. I mean, that's a highlight. Certainly. On the yeah. last day of <laughs> Last day of 2018, we got married. So we started off the new year as a newly married couple. Yeah. yeah. And then very quickly, we bought a house, retired from the military, got some new jobs. Moved uh, in together. Yeah. Became uh, co-parents. Uh, went to Oshkosh. <laughs> got a dog. Yeah. Oshkosh, Reno. We got a dog. Just doing the whole family life thing. And it's just been a wonderful transition. Uh, I know there's a lot of people in aviation that, do it because they love it. And, and there's so many times where I, I listen about or listen to people that, that want to get into aviation. You certainly couldn't do it without somebody there to support you. So I wouldn't have been able to do everything that I've done in 2019 without Megan's support. Uh, so that's probably the biggest highlight of 2019 is just Megan and Maddie and Lois Lane who's hanging out <laughs> yeah. back there I, by I, the fire. I, I should just stress, I would like her to chill out a bit more. Um, yeah, she, <laughs> she looks She's very angry. She's very angled. poop from the holidays, right. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Far too much turkey and tinsel for her, I guess, yeah. <laughs> yeah, and then I guess looking forward to 2020 is going to be hopefully not as much change, but, uh, oh, I you don't know, know just I mean, within the... You, you say that though there's there's quite a big change coming up for for both of you in the fact that obviously i mean your role is uh, i don't know I, I mean it must be difficult for for you megan as well looking at uh uh because obviously hopefully you're going to be in the air soon armando flying for a you know a legacy carrier to a degree um or not legacy carrier that's not the word i'm looking for is it but uh you know it's <laughs> a, a regional jet um so well no what what you know what is it that you oh, i screwed that up oh, balls <laughs> there will be a big shift in our family life that's for sure yeah. i mean we were used to only seeing armando like on vacations yeah. <laughs> when he was in the military and then since he's been retired i mean we've had him home the majority of the time so now this is going to be in between he'll be here he won't be here and we'll just have to adjust our our family life which 
is a new challenge that we're looking forward to. Yes, absolutely. Yes. <laughs> I mean, exciting as well, though, right? I mean, this is Very this exciting. is what a lot living the dream now. Yeah, too right, absolutely. And like, but like you say, without the support of um, you know someone like Megan, obviously, then the, these things can't be done, can they? So it's uh, it's uh, it's it's exciting, I suppose. It's uh, but uh, a lot of people that is the dream, isn't it? Where they leave the military and they want to get a, a flying job, you know, sort of off the back of it. And uh, you've certainly managed to pull that off between you. Yeah, not not just the military and not just aviation. It is proof that, you know, often I, I think we all want to, we have these dreams and goals and life happens and, and we tend to sort of veer away from that path. But eventually it's just proof that with the right support and the right motivation and drive, you can get back to that path. And, and I, I guess it sounds kind of corny, but don't stop following your dreams. This is the perfect, <laughs> yeah. the perfect proof. Don't and stop believing. Don't, yeah, I feel like that's my ringtone. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. If it's not, it should be. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah, oh, well. and, it, and it's not just, and it's not just me. Megan is doing the same thing, you know, and and I'm supporting her and and her academic pursuits and and just our family goals and dreams. So it's it's easy to get derailed, I think, and sometimes that's necessary, but. But I, I hope to show people that that uh, you can you can follow your dreams. You just have to do it, you know, with the right the right plan and the right support. Yeah, absolutely. So, so Nev, Nev, I have to ask the question because I'm sure everyone is gagging to know. Did you get a car washing kit for Christmas? No, I, I I didn't. <laughs> no, because uh, the thing is, I've got so much so many car washing items uh, in my garage that I, I, I think I could sell Halfords some. <laughs> Other car retailers are available. Of course, yeah, uh, absolutely but, goes without um, saying. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, I didn't. No, so just just some small gifts uh, between me and Sue this year. Nothing, nothing too extravagant. Some socks. I'm glad to hear. It. Ah, it. yes, socks and pants. They're compulsory. And smellies. Obviously, Christmas wouldn't be Christmas without smellies. Let's be honest. <laughs> and, and it's safe to say, Matt. Obviously, being being the proud owner of a, of a, of a new shiny new uh, oh, very much newish so. car. Yeah. You've you've you obviously already treated yourself to a full uh, bootload of cleaning materials. Do, do you know what? Actually, all, all jokes aside, it's genuinely the first time that I've had a car that I'm actually proud to have. And in my, I, I bought one of these fancy. I mean, you know, the novelty will soon wear off. Don't get me wrong, but like I bought this like fancy like car boot tidy thing that's got all my um, cleaning stuff that lives in a nice little container, which is great. So when you need to empty the boot, you can just pick it up and take it all out. Uh, yeah, no, it, it's great. It's been it's been a oh. I, it's just been an amazing year, hasn't it, really? It really mm. has. So we've got lots to pack in to the show today. Uh, not the news this week, uh, on this week's show, but we've got lots of little segments to put in on the show this week. And coming up first, we're going to hand things over to Nev to introduce the first part uh, of this I'm New Year's so show. so excited about this. And this, for me, um, because obviously being the hosts of the show, we get privy to first dibs on oh, yes. viewing this. So I, I look, obviously me and Matt watched this uh, when it went into the uh, Dropbox. I'm sure Armando did. And I also just sent a little swift link off to my dad who watched did it. You? Now, absolutely, very <laughs> he absolutely, absolutely loved it. But Nev, what's coming up next? 
Well, we're very lucky because uh, I sent an email to uh, Captain John Hutchinson uh, some months ago and asked him if we could do an interview with him. Now, uh, John worked for British Airways uh, for, for many years uh, and uh, spent 15 years on Concorde. Uh, but uh, we managed to get him into a very chatty mode, I have to say. Uh, and obviously, uh, John's career goes way back before he was on Concorde, back in 1977, uh, when he was with the RAF. So we got our intrepid RAF pilot, Nick Anderson, <laughs> to interview him. And uh, this is going to be a fascinating series, let me tell you. John Hutchinson has had, by any measure, a wonderful flying career from his post-war start on Harvard's through such classic aircraft as the Shackleton, the Boeing 707, the Boeing 747, the Vickers VC-10, and the iconic supersonic transport aircraft, the Concorde, he has spent more time at Mach 2 than most military pilots. We talked to him about his book, The Wind Beneath My Wings. I'm here to talk to John Hutchinson about his marvellous life and your fabulous book, John. So thank you very much indeed for letting us come to speak to you today. Oh, great pleasure, Nick. It's nice to see you. Thank you. I'm going to fire straight off with uh, the first questions. And uh, I'm, I'm really trying to pick areas uh, of the book that you might not have discussed before and that uh, particularly piqued my interest. But uh, the first thing I noted was that you were brought up uh, in India during a fascinating period of history. Um, the partition of India and Pakistan, the handing over of uh, uh, India, or the, the India moving from uh, previous control of the British Empire. Uh, how much do you think your early life molded your, uh, the person you have uh, become? What an interesting question. What I say to start with is that it was fascinating. My father was in the Indian Army. He was a colonel. He was the archetypal Indian Army colonel. And he spent the 1930s up and down the northwest frontier. Oh, wow. That's places been like Gilgit and Fort Sandeman and all these places. And the, the great fear was that the Russians would come in into India through Afghanistan. Mm. Um, Second World War came and dad was reassigned to sort of staff duties and at the end of the war as we started going into the business of partition uh, he worked under mount batten um, up in simla um, shimla i suppose i should say now and um, uh, i have to say he had very little time for mount batten he didn't like him at all uh, he thought he was a rather pompous man and was a bit full of himself but there we are that's another story um, but my memories of India all my mates were Indians there weren't any other boys of my age around who were white so you know I grew up with Indians and I I can remember for instance in the winter they used to flood the tennis courts and similar and that became the ice skating rink. 
It was that cold? It jolly well was. It's oh, wow. 7,000 feet up in the Himalayas. Well, not many people would have thought that. No, no, no. It's very cold. I mean, there was one winter when they had so much snow that the railway station subsided, collapsed under the weight of <laughs> snow. I'm not kidding. Well, I never. That was the winter of 1947, I think. 46 into 47. Um, and I used to sit in our house looking down on the tennis court and wait for the red balloon to be hoisted, indicating that the skating rink was fit for duty. I love and it. I'd go down there and I'd spend the day skating with all these Indian mates of mine. So the business of sort of color, or, and, and I've, you know, I've, I've, it's quite interesting in, in the last year or two, there's been all sorts of comments about the role of the British in India and really rather sort of hostile criticism. All I can tell you is that I never saw any of that at all. Um, our servants were part of our family. And I remember when our Aya, our nanny, who almost was my surrogate mother, I mean, she looked after me more than my mother did, to be perfectly frank. I can remember dad taking her off to the railway station to put her on a train to go to what is now Pakistan. She was in tears. We were in tears. I mean, it was saying goodbye to a member of our family. And I will never know to this day whether or not she ever survived that journey because yeah. those trains used to get ambushed and they'd all be slaughtered. I mean, yeah. the killing that went on in during partition was absolutely on a monumental scale. It really was. Uh, but none of it was directed towards the Brits. It was all Hindu, Muslim. But being part of that, uh, so, do you think it made a, you so a stronger how, person? So how did it mold my life subsequently? That's, not, that's a very difficult... For a start, race isn't an issue with me. You know, I mean, I've, to me, I've always been used to uh, the whole concept of sort of racism is something I is really to me quite foreign. Um, so I suppose that's one one effect it had on me. Um, I suppose the sort of uh, this isn't really India. Though. This is more my family sort of upbringing, which was very strict and, um, and you know, a very disciplined environment. Um, that carried me through in very good stead when I joined the Royal Air Force, I suppose. Discipline was something I was sort of used to. <laughs> Excellent. It's interesting. Of your schooling, you wrote in the book, I knew how much work I would have to do to be able to join the RAF. I did the minimum amount necessary, which I loved. Uh, what's your advice nowadays to those thinking of uh, making a career for themselves in aviation? I would say don't do the minimum amount necessary. <laughs> go, go for broke and do as much as you possibly can. Excellent. <laughs> because it's such a competitive world now, isn't it? Yes. I mean, when I came onto the scene in 1955, you could grandly look around and survey the scene and think, oh, I'll be a doctor or this or that or the next thing. And it, it was just a totally different world.
Um, but I never wanted to be anything else other than an RAF pilot. I don't blame you. I see you started your flying training in Moose Jaw, Saskatchewan. And that's a fairly remote place, but once uh, you, you must have uh, flown over it later in your life, perhaps on a, a route, say, to San Francisco or somewhere. What memories did that bring back as you were sitting on your 747 looking down? I never want to see Moose Jaw ever again in my life. <laughs> um, it, was, it was a fantastic place for a flying training school. It was about 40 miles, 50 miles north of the US border had a tremendous reputation in Prohibition era, era oh, wow. because the Americans would all flood across the Canadian border and buy their booze in Moose Jaw. And it was all, <laughs> I mean, they had saloon bars with all these sort of swing doors and things, just like you see in a Western. Oh, that must in be Western. fabulous. Um, but it was as flat as a pancake. Uh, the roads either went north, south or east, west. Um, if you got lost, all you did was fly down low level in your Harvard until you came past a grain elevator and all the grain elevators had the name of the little settlement painted on the side of the grain elevator and you then found that on your map and there you were, you now knew how to get home back to Moose Jaw. So it, it, was, it was a fabulous place from a flying training point of view. But the weather, I mean the weather was good in flying terms, probably 75-80% of the time and then it was so bad that you couldn't possibly consider flying. There was sort of no in-betweens. Um, but the temperatures, I mean, in the summer it would get up to plus 40 and in the winter minus 40. And, you know, you could feel your nose freezing up as you breathed air in through your nose. You did not breathe in through your mouth in those sort of temperatures. You breathe through your nose to avoid sort of freezing your lungs up. I guess you had to do survival courses in case you jumped out uh, in the in the bush, as it were. Funny enough, I didn't do a survival course until I'd got my wings and finished my flying training. <laughs> and then I did the survival course. Perhaps they considered bit, you expendable bit, up to that bit point. Back to front, yes. isn't it? <laughs> I would have thought so. Oh, I like that very much. Now, despite your ambivalent feelings towards uh, Moose Jaw, you seemed as if your intense pa intense passion for the joys of uh, flying blossom there yeah i had a very difficult time to start with um, um you know, i had a very unforgiving instructor bear in mind i was at this stage 18 and a half i'd never driven a car i was very immature quite frankly um and to be presented with a harvard as your ab initio trainer is quite it's quite a challenge i mean it's a big lump of metal a mm. harvard Powerful too. And powerful. And it had vices, you know, it would flick stall, uh, tip up on its nose, no trouble at all, ground loop on landing, no trouble at all. Right. Had all sorts of little vices to catch you out. Um, and I did my first test, it was called the preliminary clearhood test at 15 hours and I failed it comprehensively. So I was now sort of under review for for the chop and I was reassigned a different instructor who is a completely different kettle of fish and he just built up my confidence and then it took me about 23 hours to go solo something like that 23 24 hours and he sent me solo and then 
shortly after that, something clicked. I don't know what it was. The hand-eye coordination suddenly clicked, and I have never, ever looked back on a course since. With, I've never had any problems with any course since. You know, it, it gave me a tremendous grounding, the Harvard. And I think my sort of moral of that story would be that if you could fly a Harvard, you could sort of more or less fly anything. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Nowadays, trainers seem to be very benign. Uh, and I wonder sometimes if that's the right way around. As an ex-flying instructor, I would totally agree with that. My last three years in the Air Force was instructing on Jet Provost, yeah. which is incredibly benign. And I think you yourself went on to follow Nats, if I, if I That's right, heard yes. it all correctly. Yeah. Um, and going from a jet provost to a follow Nat was a quantum leap, yeah, which was... you probably weren't really properly prepared for. <laughs> but luckily, we all survived. Well, I tell you wow. what, Nev, you've done astounding work there with uh, with Nick, and uh, I have to make a quick no uh, note on that actual video that uh, Nick and John were wearing uh, fairly matching socks. <laughs> yes, that will see what they, they must have got them for, for their birthdays or Christmas or something like that. Yeah. But, was, it, was it the memo you sent around beforehand? They must have matching yeah, socks. That's yeah, that's it. Uh, but <laughs> yeah. uh, as you can tell, uh, John is a very interesting character indeed. Yeah. And there will be many more uh, parts of this interview to play out over the coming weeks. So, oh, uh, I, I, I do, really do you know what I love it. about the, the interview? This is the great thing with, uh, and we're so lucky that Nick's willing to, to do bits for us, obviously, is he knows uh, when to shut up. And I know that I don't mean that in an unkind way. Do you know what I mean? He knows when to just let the guest sort of tell the story. Do you know what I mean? No, no interruptions or anything. It's it's just a it's it's oh, brilliant. I can't I can't wait uh, for part two. And part two, if I recall, Nev, uh, we're actually sharing at our three hundredth episode. Yes, we're going to play part two uh, on the eleventh of January uh, at the Renaissance at Heathrow. So whoever's going to be there on that occasion will be able to see part two. And actually, if you thought part one was good, part two is even better. Yeah, it's a, a very very interesting uh, watch and listener. Absolutely. Now, Nev, I've, I've got to ask this question: being the amazing cameraman that you are, on that uh, piece that you done there. Were those strategically placed, the painting and the model, or was that kind? Of, were they already there? there? There was a bit of strategic placement, but the slight <laughs> fail on my part was that it showed a lot of reflection, so you could actually see the tripod of the camera and oh. me moving around a bit. But oh. as uh, if it's an audio podcast you're listening to, you'll be none the you'll wiser. Be absolutely none the wiser. Absolutely, I think they call it set dressing, don't they, Nev? When you do stuff yes. like that, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. Actually, we mentioned uh, briefly there uh, the three hundredth. I think it worth mentioning. Uh, Nev and I had a little recce. Uh, we went up to. Uh, or down to sorry for I don't know it depends on which part of the country you're coming from sideways we sideways we we went to London basically and uh, Nev and I uh, met for breakfast and uh, we got the opportunity to have a look through the uh, into go into the function room have a look and uh, we had a little chat while we were there well, if you were watching the show uh, last night, or the Christmas show that we recorded last night, I should just say, then you'll know um, that myself and Nev were off for a breakfast meeting in London uh, today. 
uh, to come and have a look at the uh, room we're going to be using for our 300th at the Renaissance. And I have to say, one of the things that has been so difficult about setting up, uh, just doing this little piece to camera now, is we have both been distracted by essentially the view that we have uh, just there. Um, there's been 747s. What we got taking off now? What's that, Nev? You, you, you. Uh, that, that's a. Uh uh, seven six seven four hundred of Delta. Airlines. That was a Delta, wasn't it? Yes, because uh, no, you smashed the quiz last night. It has to be said when it came well, to yeah. to stuff like that. But uh, yeah, great to see um, uh, some fantastic views here at the room. I, mean, I think I think this is, we're going to have a lot of very happy punters. So uh, I hope people can concentrate on the show because they'll be looking out of the window most of the time. <laughs> I, they, I think so. it'll do us a favour if I'm honest. Yeah, never I think they're, right. yeah. they're busy staring out of the window. All they'll remember is how good it was out there and not what we were saying which is great seriously guys really cannot wait for the 300th now it's going to be so exciting uh, the the guys here at the renaissance have been so accommodating we've got a, a fantastic day uh, ahead so uh, if you aren't on the guest list then you need to uh, get in touch podcast at plaintalkinguk.com that's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com you need to send us a quick email and say yes i'd like to come to the 300 we can pop you on the list and uh, yeah you can come and join us for what uh, promises to be a really interesting day. We've got a couple of things planned that I can't really tell you about yet um, beforehand, hopefully, uh, before we then do uh, the live show just mm. after lunch uh, and then and then hopefully a nice little meal for all those that are about after. Yes, yeah, speaking of food, uh, what do we think about the breakfast? Oh, oh uh, yes. Absolutely yes. I had a cheese course first because I'm, yeah. I'm a little bit different. I, I rather I, this is slightly uh, Owen's fault. I have to be honest, but I'm rather rather partial to the continentally sort of German style with mm. the, the the sausage meats and, and all that. Kind and of then thing. the full English afterwards. Shh, uh, don't, let's, let's so, keep that bit quiet. Yes. <laughs> I, I'm on a diet, yeah. <laughs> seafood diet. Well, anyway. uh, th this is a superb venue, and I'm really glad we we've chosen to to be here. Uh, it's obviously very central for a lot, a lot of people as well. Yeah. Um, but so, Good no, transport links, no yeah, excuse. Yeah, really looking forward to it. So uh, we should have a great time, shouldn't we? Yeah, can't wait. So uh, January the 11th, uh, starting from about 10 a.m., uh, it, it, yes, come to the Renaissance uh, in London. It's on the Bath Road, literally overlooking the runways at Heathrow. So don't forget, everyone, we want to see you at the 300. It's going to be an absolutely awesome show with some... Very special guests. Very special That's guests. That's all I'm going to say. Yeah. Um, so if you want to join us on the 11th of January next year, make sure you get those emails in to us here at PTUK. So, Nev, handing things over to you again for uh, for a little kind of trip down memory lane. Yeah, we'll, we'll call it another chance to see, shall we? <laughs> yes, <laughs> we will. And, uh, of course, you may have seen that we were at uh, Biggin Hill earlier this year, and uh, we met up with uh, Tony De Bruyne, and he's one of the main OV10 Bronco display pilots, and he's also the driving force behind the Bronco demo team. He's passionate about aviation since his early childhood. He's now a commercial pilot with uh, over 5,000 flying hours to his credit. And Tony loves displaying the Bronco, showing the airplane at its best as a rugged stole performer with its awesome agility and fully aerobatic capabilities. And uh, Carlos spoke to Tony at Biggin Hill earlier this year. So look at behind me here because I'm standing uh, in front of, uh, well, one of the most awesome aircraft I think we've seen here at the display uh, today at the Biggin Hill Festival of Flight and I'm here with Tony. Tony tell us a bit about this aircraft what is this amazing aircraft behind uh, it's us? It's an amazing airplane that's uh, totally on the ball. Uh, this is an OV-10 uh, Bronco built in the mid-60s uh, developed for the uh, Vietnam War in the forward air control role. 
uh, and actually used quite successfully in, uh, in Vietnam and then later in the first Gulf War as well. So what's it like to fly, Tony? Because obviously it's quite high off, off the, uh, the ground with the, the uh, undercarriage legs. Is it an easy aircraft to taxi and to, to uh, take off? Yeah, it's an absolute joy to fly. It's, it's built for doing a job. So the pilot doesn't have to worry about what's happening in the airplane. So it's, it's a stick and rudder airplane, really. Very simple to operate. It's uh, very agile. It was de designed to uh, plus 10G um, uh, load um, rating. Um, so you can throw it around. It's fully aerobatic. I mean, it's just like the most fun you can ever have in an airplane. So what kind of roles did this aircraft do, uh, Tony? Yeah, first role was forward air control, as I said before, yep. uh, counterinsurgency which basically uh, is flying over the front line where the troops are in close contact, making out the good guys from the bad guys, coordinating the attack with all means available. So this is not only the means of the airplane, but it was more like uh, uh, coordinating the attack using artillery, naval, uh, the ground troops themselves. So the, uh, the airplane carried in service uh, seven different radios to be able to speak to all the different services. Wow and then make sure they all together took out the, uh, the bad guys. So this was a very, um, uh, the airplane was very much loved by the, um, by the, uh, the ground troops, on the good side. So on the, uh, in the, in the, on the flight deck and the cockpit as such, is it all steam gauges? Are they, you yeah. know, is it high tech or? It's, it's fully steam gauge. It's typical US cockpit you'll find in the 60s. So it's, it's, you find a lot of instruments which are in a Phantom on a, or in F-104 Starfighter as well. Um, which I think is great, you know, I mean, if one instrument fails, it's only one instrument that fails and not the whole, uh, the whole uh, screen. Um, and they're all military standard instruments, so they're quite, quite easy to find and quite easy to get serviced still, still today. Yeah. So, Tony, tell us a bit about yourself. How did uh, the aviation kind of passion start with you? Where, where did you start from? PPL up to where you are now? Or? Yeah, I started with a PPL back in uh, 89. I did some glider flying that uh, way before that. And then that progressed to a CPL. So I'm, I'm a fully civil pilot. I don't have a military uh, military background. And, and I got uh, about 5,000 hours now in twin turboprop airplanes. So it must safe to say you must have a big garage back at home to yeah. store this aircraft. <laughs> That's correct. We got a hangar which is about 1,200 square meters. So what other things do you do? do you, I mean, obviously, obviously we're here at Biggin Hill uh, today. Do you go all around uh, uh, the other air shows around Europe? Yeah, this year has been a, a very successful year again. And uh, we've been in uh, Holland, Germany, Czech Republic. We're going to Hungary at the end of the season. We've been all over the UK. We're going to uh, Northern Ireland. So we pretty much cover the whole of Europe uh, this year. So this is one of the aircraft. I mean, for me personally, I, 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 the first time I've seen one of these uh, on a, you know, display, flying display. How many of these aircraft do you know are still operational flying? Yeah, there was 360 built back in the day, in the beginning of the 70s. And um, at the moment, I'm guessing like California Fire Department is flying 14 in, in California in exactly the same role that the airplane was designed for, which is coordinating an attack, but on the fire this time, so a more peaceful uh, purpose. Uh, so they got 14, uh, there is two flying at the moment in Europe, we got a second one which is coming online, so we'll have three in Europe. And then uh, in the States there is uh, two civil ones flying as well and there is a new uh, new outfit uh, of the squadron who are restoring a couple of uh, uh, OV-10s as well. The first one they got back in the air like just a month ago. So how is it, or how easy is it to, uh, to keep these aircraft flying, obviously spare parts and, and maintenance and engineering, is it something you do yourself with the aircraft or? 
Yeah, we're fully uh, equipped for doing the maintenance on this uh, on this aircraft under our uh, UKCA approvals. Um, it's it's not a very difficult airplane uh, to maintain. It's like a standard twin turboprop. To find spare parts so far has proven not to be too difficult. So we're quite happy with the airplane, and I don't see any problem whatsoever in uh, keeping the airplane in the air for the foreseeable future, which basically means 20 to 30 years or so. Wow. Uh, the engines are Garrett's. You'll find them on uh, plenty of other uh, turboprops, and they're actually still being built new today. It's a very early model of a Garrett. Uh, but however, I mean, those, the parts, the internal parts for the engines are still, uh, is still being built by Honeywell. So plans for the future, Tony, what have you got? Any, is there any plans you've got for the future? Are you going to stick, you know, stick with the aircraft or is there any other, any other sort of displays or things you want to try? It's too much fun, this airplane, so we're definitely going to stick with this one. We've got a second one which is near the end of its restoration, so we're hoping to have two online. And uh, who knows, there will be a third, a fourth and a fifth one even. Wow, to see four of these flying in formation would be absolutely awesome. Yeah, it would be absolutely awesome. I mean, it's like just, it's, it's an amazing airplane and there is some footage you can find on the internet of uh, five Broncos or more even flying in formation and it's, it's an awesome sight and sound. So Tony, whereabouts are you based yourself with the aircraft? Yeah, we're based in Flanders Fields, very close to uh, Ypres, which is on the French-Belgian uh, uh, border, just an hour's drive from uh, Calais, which puts us right in the centre of Europe. So it's, I mean, it's a good place to be to cover like the whole of Europe uh, airshow-wise. So for your journey here to Biggin Hill, uh, from where you're based, was it one one hit, or did you have to stop in various places on the way over? Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, we've got a we've got a range of like 800 to 1,000 nautical miles. Wow. It's it's only 150 miles Biggin Hill to where we're based, so it's it's an easy 40 minutes one hop. 40 flight. minutes. Yeah, 40 wow. Minutes. What sort of speeds does aircraft do at a cruise? Cruises 200 knots. The VNE is 350, but you have to point the nose quite down uh, in order to reach 350. And she has autopilot? You know, not at all. It's all uh, flown manually, wow. all the time. No autopilot, anything whatsoever. And it's a neutrally stable airplane, so you have, to, you have to stay with it all the time. So it's a real pilot's aircraft? It's, it's absolutely a real pilot's <laughs> airplane, yeah. Tony, before we wrap up, there's one last question before we uh, finish. It's a question we ask all the pilots that we interview on the show. Kind of put you on the spot question. And uh, given the chance to fly any aircraft in the world, uh, be it retired or still flying, commercial, general aviation, military, you could go and fly now, what would it be? Oh, I think I would probably stick with the Bronco. With the, you stick with the Bronco. Yeah, yeah. You love the Bronco. <laughs> I do, yes. I mean, it's, it's a fun airplane to fly. It's, it's very versatile. I mean, we've been to the most amazing places worldwide. Uh, we're planning a trip to the US, which is, is very, very doable with this, with this airplane. We've oh. been to the Far East. We've been, I mean, to so many places. And even, even to uh, very small venues, like if, if you have an air show on a, on a small grass trip or so, 600 meters to 800 meters will do us fine. So, I mean, we're so pleased with this aircraft. We don't really want to part with it, and it's so much fun to fly at the same time. Uh, I, well, obviously, you can think of many other airplanes you ever would like to fly, but <laughs> this suits us fine. Oh, it's fantastic. So, for, the, for our listeners on the show, uh, can they go somewhere to find out more about uh, what you do? Yeah, we do have a website, www.broncodemoteam.com. And we're on Facebook as well under the same name, Bronco Demo Team. Uh, and on Instagram, you can find us on social media all over the place. Well, great. Well, Tony, thanks very much for your time and okay. talking about this amazing aircraft. It's been great to meet you and uh, thanks for coming on the show.
Thanks very much, and totally our pleasure. Thanks for thank you. thank you. Thank you. So we have to make a special mention to everyone who helped us at Biggin Hill oh, this year. We yeah. we were we were treated like royalty. Sport, yeah, safe it was to fantastic. Stay. Yeah, I think guys, um, hands up. Who wants to go back next year? Oh yeah, definitely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> without without fail. Uh, <laughs> it was uh, it was good. I mean, and you and Nev, uh, um, you had uh, fantastic access, didn't you? I mean, we we yeah. the, the they were so helpful in in getting some some great interviews sorted, weren't they? Yeah, yeah, and uh, I did. Uh, I did send our, our helpful team that little uh, P2K gift. So, oh, did you? Um, oh, very yes, good. Yes, yes indeed. Sure now, that, that wasn't the only air show that we attended this year, was it, Carlos? No, no, because uh, me and Nev jetted across uh, on a lovely brand-new A350-1000 with, obviously, the UK's prestigious airline, BA. And uh, we flew to the Dubai Air Show for uh, the... Uh, well, what is one of the best air shows I think um, that I've been to. And we had a chance to walk around many stands, but one of the stands that caught mine and Nev's eye was a stand uh, brought to us by Rolls-Royce. And I got the chance to speak to Jason Sutcliffe all about the Rolls-Royce engines and what Rolls-Royce are doing with their technology. So you join me here on the Rolls-Royce stand and I'm here with Jason. And Jason, welcome onto the show. Thank you. And uh, thanks for, uh, taking the time out to come and speak with us about this amazing engine that's behind us here. So what? just tell us about this engine. Okay, so this is the uh, the Trent XWB. It's currently the world's most efficient large aero engine. Um, built in Derby in the UK, it powers the A350, um, and that's the both variants. So you have the 84K will do the A350-900, and the um, 97K will power the 850-1000. So me and Nev uh, travel here this morning, uh, well, early hours this morning, we landed here in Dubai, and we actually flew over on uh, BA's A350-1000. Okay. And uh, me and Nev both agreed, it's probably the quietest uh, takeoff that we've ever experienced on, a, on an airliner. Uh, and it's down to, I think, down to the engine, really. Absolutely, so the bypass ratio on these engines, uh, about 9.3 to one. Um, so the majority of the thrust will come from the cold air rather than the core, um, which is provides the, the temperature and the heat. So, it, yeah, noise, extremely important nowadays environmentally as well. So you can imagine um, with a lower noise signature, you can land earlier at airports, you can take off later, and you can save the airline not only money, but also give the customer value because they can reduce those ticket prices. So Jason, on a, on a technical view, I mean, look at the engine behind us. It looks very uniform, how everything is laid out. I mean, yeah. when you look at some of the engines back at the, some of the museums or some of the older generation of engines, it's all a, a bit of a, a mess of wires, but yeah. this looks really uniform. Is that is that purely by design? It's by design. So we can virtually design our engines before they're actually coming to service. And we can also virtually maintain the engines before they come to service. So I think we moved about 130 parts on this engine before the design was completed and that was purely using computer-aided design and our mechanics to try and understand how we're going to boroscope this, what parts do we need to move, how can we make it more efficient and that I think is really key but also on all Trent engines what you have here this is the dry side of the engine on the fan case and on the other side is the wet, wet side so you'll have the oil pumps, fuel pumps and so forth on the other side and here you'll have all the, the EC and all the electrical parts, which I think is really key when it comes to sort of being very efficient. If you notice though on the outside of the fan case, so they're easy to access. 
So in my other life, I was a, an engineer, and on the flight line, especially in temperatures like this, the last thing you want to do is go into a really hot engine, mm. burning your fingers and trying to take parts off. Here, they're already in a cold place. So it's a really, really unique way of doing it and ensuring that the mechanics and the turnaround times are much quicker than they will be. So the engine itself, obviously Rolls-Royce, yeah. it's uh, quite a thoroughbred, there's been some you know, some of the well-known engines like the, yeah, yeah. the RB211 that powered the TriStar. Yeah. Um, one of our favourite aircraft, I will just say, Jason is a big fan of the TriStar as well, so uh, we've got a shared passion there. But uh, where, where do you see kind of engine technology going in the future? Because obviously this is the latest technology. Sure. Where do you think the next kind of step okay. is? So, just to go where we've come from, just to get us up to date, 101 years ago now, there was an air race that went from um, London to Darwin. And that air race was powered, one of the aircraft that won that was powered by the Rolls-Royce's first ever engine, which is the Rolls-Royce Eagle engine on the Vickers Vimy, okay? Now, just to give you an idea of it, how far the technology's advanced between then and now, the Vickers Vimy would fly approximately 36, 37,000 miles in between overhauls, okay? Today's modern engine, so this engine you see here, the Trent XWB, will fly 10 million miles in between overhauls. Wow. Just let that sink <laughs> in a little bit, yeah? 10 million miles in between overhauls, which is absolutely fantastic. But I, I generally don't think we're done with the gas turbine engine yet. Um, going forward, we have um, the, the Rolls-Royce Ultrafan, um, and that is a, a geared um, wide-body engine. And the, the Rolls-Royce Ultrafan uh, is about a 10 to 15% more efficient than the engines that we have today. Going forward, I think we, we are at the cusp of the next generation of, of modern day uh, engines. So the Ultrafan is the next leap, so about 10% more efficient. Bearing in mind that each 1% of efficiency attributes to about $125,000 savings per year per aircraft in wow. fuel. Okay, So it's an awful lot of money that, that we're saving the customers over one point five, one point six million dollars. Um, but ultimately the, the the main goal for sustainability is making our way into the more electrical market. So for some of the advances we, we might see hybrids. And I think we'll start off small with the EV tolls um, and then go to the regional aircraft um, and then looking at things like blended wings. Um, you see the EFAN X with Airbus that Rolls Royce are doing right now. Uh, Rolls Royce procured um, Siemens E aircraft company. So we also have now um, a multitude of, of electrical capability. So Rolls-Royce now have a department called Rolls-Royce Electrical. And that is purely looking at industrial power for aircraft, power generation, so on and so forth. So on that subject quickly of electric, uh, what are your, sort of your thoughts on, on the whole electric part? We've talked about on the show, aircraft, commercial airliners being powered by potentially yeah. electric. So I think at the moment we're on that cusp, yeah. maybe the, the BHS Betamax, so is it hydrogen, is it electric, um, we'll be you know, looking at all those solutions. We spend over £1.2 billion pounds a year wow. on research and development, and that's really important for our future, not only for Rolls-Royce, but for the environment, for sustainability, and to ensure that we make sure that we, we are here in the next 100 years. We're 100 years, 101 years old, we want to be here around for the next 100 years. So. In terms of electric aircraft, as I say, I think we'll start small and we'll grow in size once we get that capability. Look at battery life. Yeah. 
the size of batteries yeah. now. You, you saw the I think the Nissan Leaf. That's it. Yeah. Um, the thing on, I mean, I'm just going Top Gear for example. There's a car on there, Nissan Leaf. It was a 10-year-old car, brand new. It would do, I think it was about 220 miles um, with one charge. Now it does 30. You know, 10 years later. So I think being able to harness that power source maybe through fuel cells is something that we really need to look at um, going forward. But I think early 20s you'll see the EV tolls and I, I think it's going to be more of a regulatory issue than a can we make it and design it and get it flying. Because it's not just making it and flying it, it's also about the airspace. You know, we need the, the FAA, EASA to certify these aircraft um, and if they can't get their head around it then there isn't a business case. So I think we all need to work together as an industry to make sure that this happens going forward because sustainability that has to happen. Jason, before we wrap up, you know, if I might ask a bit about your, your past, how you got to where you are now with Rolls-Royce? Sure. Obviously your background is... Uh... So I, I joined the Air Force, Royal Air Force, as an aircraft engineer in ooh, 19... 1997, um, spent nearly 20 years in the Royal Air Force and then came to Rolls-Royce about 13 years ago. Um, I've, I've done a various roles in operations, um, customers management and now in marketing um, and I enjoy this. As you can probably imagine, it's, um, yeah, I, I, now, I now live in the UAE, um, look at our customer service centre so we have a hub within the UAE that supports our customers in the Middle East, Africa and Central Asia. Um, and it's a great company to work for, great place to live, so yeah, it's all good. So before we uh, close the interview then, Jason, we always ask um, our, well, the people we interview, the pilots and people within the industry, and especially you with your background, it's an important question for you. Okay. Um, given the chance to fly any aircraft, be it commercial or military, retired or in, still in service now, oh. and you could just go outside now, jump in, take out for a spin, what would that be? Spitfire. Well done, good choice. <laughs> so Jason, on behalf of the Plane Talking UK podcast, thanks for taking time out of your day to speak with us today. I'm sure the listeners will absolutely love uh, you know, to listen to what you've told us today. It's uh, been great to talk to you and uh, thanks, you. thanks very much. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you. Okay, noise. Oh, wow. I mean, guys, it looks like you had the most amazing time. I mean, what, Nev, what was the, the highlight for you uh, at, the, uh, at uh, the Dubai Air Show? Um, everything actually, because I've never been to the air show before. And, uh, what I really liked was the access to everything that we got. It was, uh, it was well worth getting the media accreditation for it. And of course we had the opportunity, as you might've seen earlier in the year of, uh, going up the, uh, tower. Oh, of course. Uh, yeah. At the, the ATC well. tower. Yeah. Yeah. So that, that was great. Um, but, uh, yeah, really enjoyed all of it. And, uh, yeah, we're definitely going to go back there again. I think. It's, yeah. Uh, uh, Ca Ca Carlos, what about you? What, what was, what was the the highlight for you i mean that's not the first time you've been that's the second time you've been wasn't it yeah the second time but this was um, by far the, the best time mainly because i had nev with me of course uh, yeah absolutely and, um it, it was it was nice to to have you know obviously have nev with me and and have uh, nev's chums because uh, we had uh, various meetups as ah, well as control tower uh, <laughs> with various uh of members of uh, Neb's extended aviation family oh, or Neb Tech family, I should right. say. And we had, uh, yeah, we had some fun that we had. We had obviously over the tower visit, we had a, a nice meal out and stuff. And uh, yeah, it was, it, it was, it, it, Dubai show, I know it, it's a bit restricted that it's not a public show, so you yeah. can't just rock up, uh, um, buy a ticket and rock up. Um, but 
it does make for a really good show. And they still put on a very good air display regardless for the people that are there. Well, so there I, are still flying acts and stuff on it. I guess that's know. the advantage about being in the de- desert, isn't it? You've got no, you haven't got to worry about any of these building restrictions or anything like that. <laughs> no, and, and let's not forget as well, Nev, that um, we left the uh, Dubai at probably the right time. Yeah, because well, the weather was great when we were there, but on the Wednesday, I think it was, uh, there was an absolute downpour. And uh, <gasps> no I, 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 I don't know what happened to the show, but uh, last time round, they had to uh, cancel parts of the show uh, because it was so wet and also all of the um, stands and what have you outside got a good soaking as well. So we turned up and left just at the right time, I think. Wow. Okay. And you didn't get sunburned there. <laughs> no, I didn't know. That's Which is uh, remarkable for, quite for me. Quite an achievement yeah. in Dubai, yeah. absolutely. Uh, yeah. Now, uh, obviously, you guys mentioned that you flew out there on the A350. Uh, we were very lucky. One of our listeners, uh, a lovely chap with the name of Chris Griggs, he very kindly sent in to us a little review of another new aircraft that sort of uh, hit the sky, shall we say, uh, uh, this year. And uh, that was uh, his little review of a certain A220. You join me at Catwick Airport, where I await my first flight on board an Airbus A220 aircraft, named Bombardier C-Series. This particular aircraft, performing Air Baltic Flight 652 to Riga, is a 300 model, registration Yankee Lima Charlie Sierra Juliet, delivered to the airline in July 2018. It is one of three aircraft in Air Baltic's fleet, sporting a special livery. These liveries show stylized versions of the flags of Latvia, Lithuania, and in this case Estonia. As the aircraft pulls on stand, you are able to get a good look at how large the Pratt & Whitney PW1524G geared turbofan engines are. And we'll have another quick look just before we step on board. Looking at a popular flight tracking website, we can see that our route took us around London, towards Essex, before turning east over the Netherlands, Germany, the Baltic Sea and into Latvia. There was a slight delay, but looking at previous flight data, that's not unusual for this particular flight. First impressions of the cabin are that it's light and airy, with large windows and a high ceiling for an aircraft of its class. The seats are wide with reasonable legroom. The tray table is, unusually, supported by a central pillar surrounded by two small mesh pockets. The in-flight entertainment consists of PTUK, or whatever else you bring with you, and there is a large pocket at the top of the seat containing the safety information card and a rather substantial in-flight magazine. There are small screens throughout the cabin that show a moving map, the safety demonstration and lots of adverts. Towards the end of the flight, they show gate information for connecting flights. Unless you pay to reserve a seat, you are randomly allocated one at check-in. Unfortunately, mine was the furthest you can get from the window, so you'll have to forgive the shaky camera work. But let's listen to how quiet the engines are at takeoff. The engine and aerodynamic noise remained low throughout the flight. 
I didn't notice any difference in the humidity or pressure of the cabin air compared to other aircraft, but I did feel more refreshed after the flight than usual, even for short haul. The large windows also let in a lot of lateral light, adding to the improved atmosphere. After nearly three hours, the slimline seats were beginning to feel rather hard, and it was time to bid the aircraft goodbye. On my return flight from Tallinn, I was able to chat with the captain. He started flying gliders as a young man, before becoming a commercial pilot, first flying the Soviet Yakolev Yak-40, before moving to western types such as the Boeing 737, and spent the last year on the A220. Looking around the flight deck, the first thing you notice is the size of the flight displays, and for an aircraft not designed by Airbus, it feels very Airbus-like, with the side stick controls. Thanks for watching. Now, regular listeners and viewers may remember that back in November, Armando had a very candid chat with Captain Nick about uh, Remembrance or Armistice Day or Veterans Day. After they'd had their little chat, uh, I took the opportunity to ask a few questions about what Remembrance Day actually means to them. Nick, I just wanted to sort of chip in, if I may, and ask the question. Obviously, I mean, Remembrance uh, Day is is a huge thing uh, for you, uh, I understand. I mean, presumably because of the close relationships that you were talking about earlier that there must be i mean it it must completely change how as as an outsider if you like i mean i'm remembering because i'm wanting to say thank you for those who have done something that i know i wouldn't be capable of doing um but obviously when you say these very personal stories i mean it i you obviously you will have lost people during your service i mean that must be that must give it special meaning to you Absolutely. Uh, yeah. Uh, even though I never uh, took part in uh, live operations, um, our phantom base, uh, we were attending fru- funerals uh, pretty frequently uh, during my first tour. And that was, uh, you know, only three years long. I'm trying to think uh, how many uh, crews were uh, perished. Um, but um, there were certainly uh, six or seven uh, of my colleagues uh, on both squadrons uh, who disappeared. Um, and uh, it was always in the forefront of our mind. But I, I make the point that when you're a young man, that's one of the reasons that young men are so good at fighting wars, is you haven't really uh, grown a full appreciation of the dangers you're um, putting yourself in. Too. But I do, I do have an enormous feeling for those who um, have gone behind us or in the past um, because they've had a lifetime to reflect on what they did and saw as young men. The young men that are fighting now and being uh, injured, um, well, they deserve uh, our huge support. But I think it's after those events when you are perhaps 5, 10, 15, 20 even 50 years down the road, and you find that uh, you, you have, ha- are having trouble coping with the memories of the things you did or saw. Uh, and I think it's just so important for us to continue to remember that people who have served and seen death, um, not all of them uh, cope with it well. And uh, you know, they, we just have to have that level of understanding. Uh, for uh, anyone who's been through severe trauma and we should never trivialize someone as you having having a problem with uh, their mental health following uh, events like that and uh, it just makes uh, it all the more important to remember and contribute 
and uh, look after these folk because they have been through a terrible uh, period of their lives when they have been uh, in a war. And, uh, you know, we, <laughs> we should be forever grateful for that. I mean, mental health obviously is a big uh, topic uh, these days. It's very much in the forefront of, of everybody's minds at the moment. Do you think, um, in general, that certainly the, the armed forces and things are, are better at uh, dealing with it, perhaps being more aware? I think we are, but it's a two-way street. And uh, I think uh, there is a feeling sometimes that um, people aren't being proactive enough, but don't forget there is an emphasis on, on you as an ex-serviceman to recognize you're having a problem and to seek help because if you take that step, you will often find that there is more help than you uh, genuinely need and that people will uh, move heaven and earth to uh, try to solve your problems. But if you hide away from society and stop engaging and uh, let your troubles fester, that's going to make life really hard. And then saying that no one cares is is probably uh, perhaps not quite accurate. So my feeling is, uh, having dealt with my own problems, is that uh, declaring you have a problem is probably the most important step you can make and then seeking assistance uh, through to help you through that is the next step and then when, when you do you'll then find that the organizations out there have committed to guiding you and assisting you and making you uh, well again will be only too pleased to help Armando, uh, if I may uh, ask a similar sort of set of questions to you really there. Now, obviously, you have seen very active service. Obviously, you were in, you know, special forces. I know you can't say any more than that, really, in regard to your time uh, in the army. Um, presumably, again, for the, the same reasons, the, the um, Veterans Day, is, as I believe you call it in the States, has very special meaning, I dare say. Yeah, so... You know, one of the differences between Remembrance Day and Veterans Day, I think it changed for us in, in the 50s was the, it became a day to honor all veterans current and uh, and past. Yeah, for, for me, it's uh, always, I always took the time to remember those, especially in my community. And I I remember, you know, the call signs, Ratchet 33, three, Demise 25, Independence 08, Talon 33, and one, uh, Wrath 11. Those are the the aircraft that have gone down with my comrades. Um, and I've attended their memorial services. And and in addition to that, the the services for for comrades in other services that we were supporting. So when you're in, in combat and I, I never went to Afghanistan, I, I always went to Iraq and uh, there was more than enough times where you you'd get a, a notification early in the morning that some, that somebody had lost their life the previous night. And, and we would all show up the next morning in your deployed location and, and we would, uh, muster up and, and get information and and uh, it's it's weird to say that deploying is easy life is easy when you're deployed because you don't have to worry about 
life. It's almost a, it's almost an escape. There's no bills to pay. You don't have to worry about what to wear. You don't have to worry about uh, just all, all the, the regular day-to-day life challenges and you can really immerse yourself in something like that. But then you have those days where, where the, it all becomes very real. Um, and, and those were some of the most poignant times in, in my service. Now, I mean, I'm lucky enough that I know you fairly well, Armando, and I know that, you know, you're, you're not too proud, if you like, to know to ask for help, for example, if you felt you ever needed to. But, I mean, what advice uh, would you give, having recently retired, uh, to those who perhaps are f- finding life difficult? Uh, well, this, this, it's interesting. It's almost, it's almost overwhelming, the amount of resources that we have now. And I look at my dad's service. My dad served a few tours in Vietnam. And those folks didn't have uh, nearly the amount of resources. And it was, it was just a different time where if you were suffering or struggling, where you almost had to keep it in, you know, and you were looked at upon uh, as maybe weak, maybe if you let those emotions show, that's not the case today. And, and there's so many resources out there, specifically here in the U.S. You know, you have military one source. I just discovered one where mental health and behavioral health providers donate one hour a week to a veteran uh, free of charge just to, to provide an avenue for you to, to go talk to. And it doesn't have to be uh, any specific PTSD or have this combat thing that I think about that, that just keeps bugging me. It could be just a life problem because as we talked about earlier, Nick, we, it, it, it's, it's an, it's a way of life. It's uh, sometimes the work part is the easy part and, and it's easy to forget about the, the other life challenges that, that are getting thrown at you. And, and sometimes those are the things that you need to go talk to someone about in order for you to be able to do your job better and to be able to focus on it. And uh, the, I think it's just changed quite a bit as, as, as far as the amount of resources. But, but still, I, I don't know the current numbers, but, I, but we're up to 22 veterans a day in the U.S. 22 veterans a day take their own lives because they can't deal uh, with that's, those are the wrong words because there's something weighing on them so heavily that, that they're struggling to find a way out. And often that is service related and, and it's just incredibly important for those folks to, to, uh, to go out and seek, seek help. But it, it's important for us, Nick and I, and everyone like us to, to look out for those, those uh, teammates and, and, and point them right, the right way. That's exactly right, uh, and so important because not everyone not everyone is capable of recognizing that they're in such a dreadful position yeah. that they they might uh, take you know a, a decision that they uh, we would never want them to even consider. So uh, yeah, I think you're you're quite right, uh, and that's one of the 
great reasons for staying in close touch with your colleagues mm -hmm. because of course whilst you've got a buddy looking after you you know very well that he's not going to let you do anything, anything stupid. He, he's going to give you a shake and point you in the right direction, take you to somewhere where he knows you can get help. Uh, so staying in touch, I think, is absolutely vital when you leave the service. Agreed. Well, uh, gents, uh, on behalf of everyone, I'd like to uh, essentially say uh, thank you to both of you for your service. And, um, yeah, I, th I think it's very important we all remember those who uh, went before us absolutely yeah many thanks so if you remember cast your memories back to uh, to what was a nice summer here in the uk cool, yeah. by all regards it yeah. was a good summer and uh, we had a meet up at duxford and matt obviously matt's aviation knowledge is growing it's definitely growing <laughs> that's, that's i think a word. we can all agree <laughs> that matt's aviation knowledge has started to what shall I say? Blossom. Flourish. Let's go with Blossom. And Blossom. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. <laughs> but Matt had a very good opportunity indeed. And this was all off the back of Matt, because Matt done this himself. He actually collared Nick, Captain Nick, at Duxford. And uh, well, Matt... It, it was all a little bit by accident, really, because we just we were, we were in the American hangar at Duxford. As I say, we, we, it was a great meetup. We were wandering around and all that. Uh, we ended up in the, in the, uh, the American hangar. And, of course, uh, in there was uh, the F4, that, uh, uh, a variant of which, obviously, Nick used to fly. And to be honest with you, I really couldn't miss uh, the opportunity to, to hear a little bit about uh, his love uh, for the, the F4. Nick. Hello, nice to see you. Obviously, we were at Duxford having a great day. Oh, I'm enjoying myself so much, man. There's some lovely people here, you it know. Is, isn't it? Yeah, it's... shame I haven't met any of them yet. Right, okay. Yeah, all strangers, absolutely. We're standing next to, um, uh, you were saying actually this is the mili the the, um, the Navy variant. Um, uh, yeah, that's right. This is the, the Navy F4 because we're in the American hangar. That's right. So... We don't mind that, though, do we? Well, no, an F4 is an F4, and it was very similar to yeah. the, the British F4s, to be okay. truthful. It was the, the F4 that had most similarity. had uh, American engines in it, J79s, which we would have loved, but when our government decided to buy the F4, they said, well, we want a major British component put into these F4s because we're buying your American aeroplane. And the only thing they could think of was to put a Rolls-Royce engine in there as opposed to the American engine. The only engine they could think of to put in was a Rolls-Royce Spey. Now the Spey was an airliner engine. It wasn't really built for fighters. And it was a big fat engine. And when they put it in there, it made a big fat Phantom, sadly. It also really had problems uh, having a reheat fitted. And not many civil airliners had reheats. Can you think of one? No. <laughs> Nev can. Nev's not yes. in his head. Go on, Go on Nev. Nev. The Concorde, of course. The Concorde. Of co the Concorde, of uh -huh. course. Oh, no, really. I know. I never said I was any good at this. <laughs> <laughs> so the Concorde was the only civil airliner, apart from uh, Western. There were some Russian ones, of course, that had reheat. But So, big problems fitting reheat to a civil uh, engine. So when they first tried it, it kept blowing the engine out or it kept surging the engine. Uh, and they decided that the only way this reheat was gonna work was if they made it light very slowly. Now, five seconds may not seem a long time to you, but in the military world, when you need that extra thrust, five seconds is a huge amount of time. And that's how long it took us to light the reheats and the British 
phantoms because of the fact that we had these big fat um, American engines in there. So you'd rock the throttles outboard and you'd smash them forward to get reheats and then you watch the nozzles and the first thing they did was open a bit which reduced your thrust even more and then they'd go to quarter, half and then they'd finally light the full power and you'd get the real whoomph as you were pushed back in your seat and the reheats light. But that's, you know, that's a long time to wait for that extra thrust. So that was a disadvantage. So what sort, what sort of speed um, were, were you able to get out of? So, so let, let's go with the American uh, variant here. This variant was uh, truly Mach 2 capable and its maximum airspeed would have been around 600 knots, somewhere around there. And how would that compare to, with the, with the English variant? What, how well, we, were, we had the same statistics, but in reality, when you do your cutaway shot, you'll notice that this has a nice slim fuselage. From the intakes, the fuselage slims down and then fattens out towards the end, and that's called area rule. Uh, and the idea is to keep the cross-sectional area of the aircraft uh, resembling an ogival body. Uh, basically two bullets, one attached to another, it goes from a point to a fat bit to a point, and that's an extremely efficient uh, shape for supersonic speed. Going through the when we put our big fat engines in, no longer did it have this coke bottle effect, this wasting in the middle, uh, it was fat in the middle. So it went pointy, fat, 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 pointy, which wasn't very good. So we could never get Mach 2 out of our aircraft. Uh, it was not as efficient. 1.8 was about the fastest I ever got one of our Phantoms to. So uh, what, what environment would you tend to be using these, these particular aircraft for? What was their main tactical uh, purpose? Well, when we got them, they were a true multi-combat aircraft, a multi-role combat aircraft. We used them in Germany doing uh, ground attack. Um, we used them for photo reconnaissance. We used them off our carriers. Uh, in the naval version, and we use them in air defence as well. They had all that capability. It was uh, really quite a remarkable aeroplane. So it could bomb things. It had pretty impressive guns. Uh, it had lots of missiles. So it could do a multitude of roles, all of which it did very well indeed for the, the period. So is this uh, this particular aircraft? Was this what you predominantly flew when you were in the air force? Yeah, I spent uh, more or less ten years at Lucas six of which I would have been flying this. I got over a thousand hours uh, sitting in the cockpit there, which doesn't seem a lot in civil flying, no. but in military flying, a thousand hours gives you a lot of piles. Yeah. <laughs> right, okay. Paying for that now then. Yeah. yeah. The, um, how, how long would each mission usually last? Well, with a normal tank of gas, uh, so we had two tanks, wing tanks, we call Sergeant Fletchers, and a full fuselage, we'd do about an hour and a half mission. If you were doing combat, it would be less, well less than an hour. And that included transit, so you go 20 minute transit, fight for 20 minutes, 20 minute transit home. So you could eat up your fuel pretty quickly. If you put the maximum fuel load on it, so three big external tanks, full internals, you could empty the aircraft in 20 minutes total. Wow. So that's, yeah, in full reheat, that's how fast the fuel pipes are like this big. And that's what was necessary to feed the engines to keep that, uh, that round of thrust going so you could empty it very quickly. But commonly, we wouldn't waste our amount of fuel that quickly. We'd do two-hour missions. If we had three bagger, three tanks on, it would be a two-and-a-half-hour mission. If we were on QRA with a tanker supporting us so we could go back to and refuel whenever we wanted, uh, I've done six-and-a-half, seven-hour missions. Uh, and on long transit, same thing. 
So we could fly non-stop from North Scotland to Cyprus, uh, so long as we had tankers there uh, to support us. And uh, we would regularly take the aircraft across the Atlantic. Again, so air-to-air refuelling, essentially. Yeah. Is it? yeah. So just on the far side of the cockpit, there's a uh, long, thin panel, and at the flick of the switch, uh, a big probe with a knobbly bit on the end, which is probably best not described, considering... You like to keep F this clean. Fa family show, ladies and gentlemen, family Thrust show. Thrust forward, so it, it is actually telescopic and stops about a beam uh, just forward of the pilot's head. And that was our air every refueling probe. And then we'd come up behind a tanker who would be trailing a long hose with a basket on the end. And uh, we would line up, try not to watch the basket <laughs> because that was led to trouble. Right. You would line up on markings underneath the fuselage wait for the lights to change because it was all done, if you could, without radio on a light, sequence of coloured lights on the back of the tanker. And you close up, come to a waiting position and then walk forward out of walking pace, which sounds very odd when you're doing several hundred miles an hour, but literally you close on the tanker at a walking pace and fly up the line at the hose. And hopefully the basket would be taken aside by the, the bow wave of the aircraft do just the right spot to nestle under the end of your probe and you'd make contact, continue to push up and all the valves would then turn in the uh, hoodoo, the pod that the hose came from and the tanker guy would start giving you fuel and uh, within a few minutes he'd have topped you up and uh, you could withdraw and disappear off and go and do some more fighting. So if you're flying from, from Scotland to uh, Cyprus as you were saying, how many times would you need to refuel during that, that, that flight? Yeah, about four probably. So we go from Scotland to just uh, around the English Channel. The French never liked us refueling over France. I don't know what it is about the French, and, <laughs> but they, we had to refuel just before we entered French airspace. Then we were a bit, bit desperate when we came out the other side of France and uh, hit the Mediterranean, but uh, we'd have a bracket straight after that. And by that time, the first tankers would have been drier fuel. They couldn't have given us any more because we're normally in quite a big formation and lots of us are doing this, which has a certain amount of peer pressure because everybody's watching you try and make your contacts and every time you miss, scores are taken. And we know the first round... 8.4, yeah. The first round is uh, always uh, paid for when we landed at Cyprus by the man who missed the most. Right. So he would then dive off into somewhere like Sardinia and another tanker would come out <coughs> excuse me, and join us and we'd have another series of refueling brackets into uh, Cyprus and then uh, you know, we'd uh, we arrive in Cyprus usually with so much fuel we'd have to burn it off by beating up the airfield. So uh, whose responsibility is it essentially? Is it the tanker stays where it is and you go to the tanker or is it a little bit of both uh, in regards to hooking up to, to take on fuel? Yeah, there was a series of different types of joins. Generally speaking, the fighters like to do it because we, our lives, yeah, and our lives were spent doing intercepts. So the, the navigator would control the intercept and roll you out at about half a mile behind the tank and you just close up that last bit. But if we had an unserviceable radar or couldn't turn, then the tanker could do his own thing. Mm. But it took a lot of setting up and they weren't very practiced at it, so... so I mean, you, you, you talk about this aircraft with a lot of love, I mean... Oh, most certainly, yeah. Absolutely. It was a, a real war horse uh, and I think a very impressive and terrifying aeroplane, quite yeah. honestly. But, um, yeah, I spent a lot of time uh, flying it, so, yeah, I've got a great love for it. Thanks, Nick. Pleasure.
Well, Matt, I never knew you had a passion for grey stuff. <laughs> Look, let's be honest. Uh, Captain Nick can make anything grey sound fascinating. There's no two. No, all, the choice of yeah. all those commercial airliners parked outside at Duxford. You know, the VC10, yeah, the yeah, eleven, yeah. and you chose an F4 Phantom. Yeah, I know, but it, 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 you know what was fascinating for me though was was learning all about like refueling and things like that. So it wasn't just about the grey stuff. There was so much more to, to go with it. Anyway, leave me alone. It's a shame, I, I enjoyed it's shame it. they didn't let <laughs> it's a shame they didn't let Nick in just to start it up. You know. Ah, yes, that's right. true. I tell you what though, I I, I love going to um, museums and air shows with Nick because you you learn so much uh, about uh, the stuff that he was it, involved with. It's, it's like the exhibits sort of like trigger a memory, don't they? They sort of trigger mm. him off to sort of of talk about something new which is fantastic it was i was oh, it was such a good meetup as well wasn't it we were again i know oh, yeah. we mentioned earlier that you know we were so lucky with the weather um but uh, i mean i i've never had a day go so fast uh, as as it did at uh, ducks we need to do that again uh for 2020 i think we definitely yeah. need to do that well yeah. there's some possibly something uh similar uh in the pipeline already isn't there for uh sort of uh middle of the year sometime isn't there so uh, watch this space more details to come so obviously we're talking about some of our favorite parts of 2019 so we're going to hand things over to armando because he has a very special uh thought and remembering piece of uh, 2019 so we're going to hand things over to the legend that is armando Hey guys, so for this next interview, uh, Megan and I had the pleasure of interviewing Barry and Sandra Payne at Oshkosh. So Barry and Sandra were flying their Comanche across the world or around the world. And they, they were just an awesome couple that we not only enjoyed interviewing, but they were just fun to talk to. You know, and I, I think the interview was maybe 10 minutes, but we ended up talking to them for 30, 45 minutes. Uh, they were just a, a good, inspiring couple, which is why I chose that as my favorite segment for 2019. What did what did you think of them? They were super down to earth. The fact that they were traveling all around the world and kind of didn't really think much of it was pretty cool. Yeah. So here is my favorite interview for 2019. All right. So team, I'm here with Miss Sandra Payne and Barry Payne who are flying a Comanche all the way across the world. Uh, first of all, welcome to the show. Thanks, Amanda. Thank what? you. So you're, you're flying across the world. How did you get this idea? Well, it was, uh, we've run out of long-range flying to do in the uh, South Pacific area, and we thought, what's next? And um, somebody... <laughs> Sandra said, well, we should fly around the world. And I said, well, why not? Let's go do it. Now, she was telling me, you guys have flown this Comanche over some pretty open expanses of water, haven't you? Just in the past 10 years. We have, and um, we live in New Zealand, and uh, anywhere you want to go um, seriously outside New Zealand you've got a lot of water to fly over to get to the next bit of land or country so uh, you know, we're quite used to flying over water and um, in fact we um, bought the Comanche so that uh, we could do just that with, um, with ease. And, yeah. So what was it about the I've flown I've flown the Comanche and I know I fell in love with it as soon as I started flying it but what was it about the Comanche that you were looking for that you said that's the the right airplane to do this. Well, it wasn't 
it wasn't my choice to begin with. Um, I was looking for an aeroplane that we could do just what we're doing now with, comfortably. And um, a good friend of mine said, well, you need a Comanche. And I said, no, I don't, um, <laughs> thinking they were too old. But um, when I looked at the uh, performance specs, uh, he was right. Um, and the, this Comanche, well, um, it's a light aeroplane. We can uh, carry the fuel load and ourselves and some very light baggage and uh, survival equipment and uh, take off at gross weight. Now, Miss Sandra, you're also a pilot, correct? That is correct, yeah. yes. So how do you manage the workload um, or the planning going across the ocean and such, you know, such an endeavor? Uh, Barry and I fly as a crew, and we, we decided we'd look at what our strengths and weaknesses were and so he does all the takeoffs and landing and twiddling with the, um, you know, the autopilot. I manage the systems and the fuel and the human factors, making sure our oxygen levels are at the right level, hydration, um, all the things that I call housework on the flight. And together, I think we fly as a pretty nice team. Yeah. Mm. Well, that's the perfect marriage too, isn't it? <laughs> a very good one, actually. Yeah, so we've been married 50 years. Congratulations. I've been flying 50 years, and um, we've got 50 flights around the world. Uh, so it's 50 years at Oshkosh as well. Yeah, so it's, it's, the stars have aligned this year to do this, right? Yeah, certainly have. Now, what kind of planning, we were talking a little bit about weather planning just in what time of year do you go, but what kind of planning considerations does it take to go across the world? Well, obviously, f fuel is the big criteria. Afgas is not as available as it uh, used to be many years ago. So our routing is primarily around where the uh, fuel's available. And, um, and then, of course, uh, where um, it's... W in many cases, we just want to go to those places and, and have a look. So um, that really set our planning. Now, you were saying that you've, you've crossed uh, the equator a couple of times now. Uh, we yeah. We've crossed it once, and when we go back, we'll cross it again. And no major weather problems or challenges? Uh, when we came up through the intertropical conversion zone, we were expecting a little bit of turbulence and maybe not, you know, not such a good flight, but we were blessed and we had a really nice smooth ride. The interesting thing is you could see the pattern ahead of you and the clouds were quite open so we were allowed to you know, just go around them and keep going. So it was a pretty nice flight. Now what's the longest leg that you're doing that is over water or the furthest from an airport that you will be? Uh, we've already done that. It was from Kagosh uh, sorry, from Guam to Kagoshima in Japan, and that was a nine-hour flight over water. And it really was over water. There wasn't a bird, a fish, a plane, or an island anywhere along the line. But it was a good flight, and uh, we really enjoyed it. Have you made any special modifications to the airplane for this trip? No, really, it's uh, it's the airplane as we use it every uh, every time we fly. Um, it has, uh, um, as a Comanche, it has an extra fuel tank in the back, but that's a um, uh, an STC fuel tank for the Comanche. So we've got 140 gallons, which gives us um, about 11 and a half hours. And uh, so literally, um, and I'm the, I maintain it, so I'm the engineer as well. 
So we literally pushed it out of the hangar, put our survival gear on board, and set out. That's great. And can you describe the route a, a little bit? What, so you've left New Zealand, and what's, what's the overall plan? Uh, we left New Zealand on 28th of April, and we've allowed ourselves a six-month window to do the trip. We went from um, New Zealand to Australia, Australia to Papua New Guinea, Papua New Guinea to Guam, Guam to Japan, Japan, three stops in Russia, and then across to Nome in Alaska. And we've done a bit of a ticky tour, I think you would call it, in, <laughs> in the USA. And we went out to um, New York, and then we went down to Tulsa in Oklahoma, and then back on up here to Oshkosh. So this is kind of about halfway. Um, from here we go into Canada, over to Goose Bay, up to Greenland, Iceland, and into Scotland, England. And then we're hoping to go to Switzerland, Poland, and then to Moscow. And from Moscow, we'll go across Russia and into Vladivostok, and then down south home from there. That's that's a amazing endeavor that you you're taking on. And one of the things that we were talking about earlier was the community aspect of aviation and how when someone takes uh, on an effort like this, it suddenly people start helping you from all over, don't they? Look, aviation, the general aviation community is worldwide, is smitten with exactly the same virus. <laughs> and, it, um, and so there's, a, um, there's no known antidote and you just enjoy it. And so, yeah, it doesn't matter where you are. The only difference might be a bit of language, um, but that's quickly overcome by... Uh, the, the fraternity of aviation. Yeah, we have met so many lovely, lovely people um, across all of the countries we've visited so far. And um, all I can say is, uh, if that was the world, it's a nice place. I agree. And Oshkosh is the best place to experience that with people from all walks of life and every country and every kind of airplane here, isn't it? Yes, it is. Yeah, yeah no, amazing. So um, it's our second visit to Oshkosh. Um, and I can say bringing our aeroplane here has been one amazing experience um, and, uh, and we're only halfway through. Well, I wish you all the best and, and we actually always end with one question and since you're both pilots, I'll ask both of you. If you could fly any airplane in the world, current, past, future and money was no object other than your beautiful Comanche because I did take a look at it, it's beautiful. What airplane would that be? Um, I think here at Oshkosh, I've actually fallen in love with the Spartan Executive. And I think I wouldn't mind giving that one a go. Yeah. Yeah. And me, I couldn't go past a Mustang. Yeah. Have to have it to match my motor car. Well, I think you guys should pass out your cards and your, bro your little brochure over there in the vintage and warbirds area. And you may, you may get the chance before you take off on Thursday, right? Oh, thank <laughs> yeah. And thank you very much for your uh, time. And um, we look forward to perhaps meeting up again in the future. But if you ever come down under, do come and see us. I absolutely will. I have your contact information. And, and you're leaving here Thursday. Thursday. So uh, if anybody w is listening over in, in Europe and anywhere on that route that they mentioned, you know, look them up on their website, which I saw, and you can actually, what's the website again? Bazflyer.com. And that's Baz, uh, Bravo Alpha Zulu, uh, flyer.com. 
and you can follow their progress. Thanks, guys. Thank you very much. Thank you very much. Pleasure. So that is it. That's where we're going to start to wrap up our New Year's show for this year. It's safe to say 2019 was a busy year yeah. and uh, definitely uh, definitely brought us some uh, some great content for the show. Definitely. And it's worth mentioning as well before we wrap up the show that pretty much everything we do uh, on the show is helped and uh, funded by you guys, our Patreon donators to the show. So a big, massive, massive, especially from me and Nev and Matt and Armando, yeah. thanks to everyone who very, very kindly donates to the show each, uh, each month. And it's safe to say, Nev, I mean, we've, uh, you know, we've, um, I mean, to, I mean, for the benefit of some of the listeners, just sort of kind of tell them, you know, where partly bits and pieces of the money go to. Yeah, we're always looking for, for new ways of, of doing the show. Um, we're looking for uh, you know, replacement equipment all the time and, and this kind of stuff. And, of course, you know we have to pay for media hosting costs and, and website hosting costs and that kind of thing. Um, but we hope that this year um, we've been able to bring you a really improved uh, video quality as well across the YouTube channel when you're watching that. Uh, and hopefully as well you'll notice that the uh, podcast audio quality is good as well. So we strive really hard to bring you the best possible content and uh, audio and video quality from us. Absolutely. And it's all, all very kindly paid for uh, by you guys. If you would like to become a Patreon, you can do that by going to the Patreon website. Uh, you can so uh, just remind me how I spell that. I always get this wrong, isn't it? P A T R E O N, isn't it? It's Patreon. That's correct. There, get me. Uh, if you're unsure, though, take yourself to our website, www.plaintalkinguk.com. On there, you'll find all the links uh, on how you can contribute towards the show. You can, for example, contribute by contribute by simply clicking on a link on our website, shopping with Amazon. And Which I do. Absolutely. And uh, basically, we get a, an admin uh, referral fee, if you like, an advertising referral fee. So you can all even donate to the show just by doing your shopping where it doesn't cost you a penny. If you'd like to get in touch with the show, it is podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. That's podcast at plaintalkinguk.com. Please do that if you'd like to join us for our 300. Spaces are filling up fast. So please do. Uh, I think we've only got about 20 spaces left, if I recall. So uh, if you haven't done so already and you want to join us for the 300, as I say, podcast at plaintalkinguk.com and obviously follow us on social media. Search your favourite social media channel for Plain Talking UK, all as one word. So that's it then for the New Year's show and uh, I hope you've all had a fantastic Christmas filled with all the usual delicacies such as quality streets and <laughs> Other no more. Brands no are more. Available. It's, yes, it's gonna be. It's gonna be apples, oranges, bananas, yep, yep. fruit. Everybody's back on the diets now. That's it. That's it. Christmas and New Year are all over. So uh, that's where we say goodbye, everyone. Take care. We'll see you in 2020, as I say, with the 300th uh, sort of fast approaching. So from everybody here, everybody say goodbye, everyone. Bye-bye. Bye bye. Bye.